This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone. So um, I'm going to be reading um, scripture reading now. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you may get one from the tables at the sides, or you can raise your hand and we can pass one to you. Um, today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 58. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokor and Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demon between Sokor and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze grease, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his, its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield barrel went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, you will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become a subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephraim named Jesse, who is from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first born was Eliab, the second Abinab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keep of supplies and ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted to his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled for him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? 
He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. But David said it was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he put his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with six? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me, sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with his sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the shift. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their heroes did, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath, to the gates of Ekron. Edith was strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they planted your hand. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sam, for reading today's passage. I hope you enjoyed the, the story. Um, it's one of the most famous stories around David and Goliath. Now, before we start, I hope you have your Bible with you. If you need a physical one, there are quite a few large prints on your left and right. Or if you use your uh, physical, uh, your digital Bible, you can as well. But today's passage, 1 Samuel, will not be on the slides, so you will need your Bible. Why don't we start this time asking the Lord to help us. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you this afternoon we can gather to hear from your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us in a world of distractions, of all kinds of flickering lights, that God, you help us to hear from your word, to understand it, and to respond to you. Please help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've always been fascinated by ventriloquism. You know, ventriloquism, when they have a puppet with their own life, uh, and then they speak, while the man next to the puppet is kind of the less smart of the two. Yeah, so uh, I've always had this fascination with, uh, with puppets, with uh, ventriloquism, and in fact, this, this guy is called Rory, and he, he appeared on Sunday school Zoom during COVID because he was too bored and he kind of played around. I'm not good with it, but it fascinates me. And one thing it does is this, that ventriloquism makes us realize that our eyes do not always make right judgment. You know, the puppets really are not that smart. They're not even alive. Uh, this guy went to Batam without a passport and it was perfectly all right. How well do you and I see things in our world? Our eyes and our hearts can make very poor judgment. We can see a very handsome man and think that he's really smart. We can see a very pretty lady and think that she has everything together. We can see someone who has a really sweet smile and think that that's a really kind person or someone with a lot of tattoos to be very dangerous. But our eyes can deceive us. As they often do. Now, this morning, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17, we are invited to witness how people may see with their eyes but are blind in their hearts. The two chapters are neatly divided into chapter 16, the anointing of David as king, and chapter 17, the affirming of David's kingship. So, I'd like to invite us as we begin in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Um, in your Bible, look at it with me. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. It reads, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Now here's the background so far. It's been the darkest moment for, so, uh, for, Sam, for Samuel in his life. He has seen way too many dark days and his heart has grown weary. Just think with me for a moment what Samuel has seen. From young, he, he saw his predecessor Eli, the one who raised him up, um, who have uh, died in a terrible way, and he has fallen. He saw Eli's two wicked sons who did evil and faced God's judgment and died. He saw the failure of his own children who turned away and Israel rejected them. He saw the failure of God's people who wanted a king instead of God as their king. And then he anointed Saul and he saw Saul, the king, rejecting God and God in turn rejects Saul. So Saul of Samuel has seen many dark days. In fact, the last verse from the previous chapter reads this way. In chapter 15, the last verse says, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. Now, if you ever felt that you have seen too many disappointments, welcome to Samuel Club, because that is what he sees. Now, the Lord spoke to Samuel in verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I am sending you to 
Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, one of the translation puts it more literal saying this. They say, the Lord said, I have seen among his sons for myself a king. I have seen among his sons for myself a king, meaning I've chosen a king from amongst Jesse's son. Now, if you were uh, in the story of uh, chapter 16, you knew Samuel was initially hesitant. But he obeyed the Lord nevertheless, and he traveled to Bethlehem with a horn filled with oil that a new king would be anointed. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know what comes to mind when you hear the word Bethlehem and king? What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Jesus, yeah, you're New Testament people. Like if you're a Jew or your Old Testament, the first thing that comes to your mind is Michelangelo, right? The the the, the king, the greatest king of Israel, even the flag has it, uh, the shield of David. So when you have Bethlehem and king, you think of David. And of course, for New Testament, you think of Bethlehem and king, you think of Christmas. think of Jesus, the son of David. So historically, he is the greatest person, uh, David, the greatest king. And historically, for Christians, Jesus uh, comes to mind when we think of Bethlehem and King. So Bethlehem and King carries a really important reference to this world. But I want to drill in even more specifically in chapter 17. If you have a Bible, look at verse 12. It says this further. It says, David's father, Jesse, he was actually from a small clan within the tribe of Judah, uh, and he's known as an Ephrathite. This little detail became prophesied centuries later after King David's death, and it was mentioned in one of the prophet books in Micah 5 2. Let me read to you what it says. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So we are familiar with the place we are familiar with the king and we know the reference it is we are told that after david another chosen king will come from bethlehem Ephrathah, a clan within the tribe of judah a king from god whose origins were from ancient times and we know this future king is jesus the son of david son of god now the question is why do i mention this here it is this, so that as we read chapter 16 and 17, we do not see wrongly that these events were mere moral stories, especially when we come to the famous account of David versus Goliath. Rather, we are to see that these chapters are God's preparation to save Israel, even us, through the king that he will choose. So come back to chapter 16, verse 6, and let us read on these events with very careful eyes. Now, Samuel had gone to Bethlehem to perform a sacrifice. He invited Jesse's family along. Verse 6, they arrived. Samuel saw Jesse's eldest son, Eliab, and he was impressed. Now, his heart almost lifted up a little. Now, Samuel, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, in a, in a worldly perspective, Eliab must look like a Saul version 2.0 to lift up the heart of a weary old man. Now, if you're in a movie, you have a good-looking hero to be replaced by an even 
better looking or bigger size hero, right? So if you are followers of Superman, you know, uh, from the underpants outside to inside, uh, the, the Superman just get bigger and bigger and buffier and buffier. You never get a Superman that becomes scrawnier and smaller and uglier, right? That's, that's how it works for the tickets to go up. So, so for, for Eliab to impress Samuel, he must be someone impressive, a potential replacement for Saul. But the Lord said in verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Now friends, here is an immediate principle we must grapple with for God to speak this way. It is an immediate principle for us to hold on in order to read the rest of today's passage. In fact, the whole of the Bible. Do not consider his appearance or his height. This is true for God's king here. It is true for God's future king. Because here's the thing, you and I as humans, we have a way of saying this world. But God has a different way of dealing with his world. And so comes the key sentence in verse 7 that we need to wrestle with. And if you have uh, five minutes worth of brain muscles, this is the time. Can I invite you to wrestle with me just for a few minutes on this? This is the hardest part of today's sermon. Wrestle with me on this half a verse and you will uh, flow smoothly after that. I want to read to us verse 7b in ESV. Look at it with me. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, there are two ways to read this sentence or this verse. Uh, it will require some hard work from you. Uh, and I'm going to take some reference from John Woodhouse's commentary on 1 Samuel. But look at this verse. The first way to actually read this uh, verse is this, is to focus on the man Eliab. So this is the way to read verse 7b. Man, meaning people, they look at Eliab's outward appearance, good looking, tall, and decided from a human perspective, well, Eliab would be a great king. However, the Lord looked at Eliab's heart and he rejected him because his heart was not right. And if you read on in verse uh, 28 of chapter 17, it lies because Eli will become jealous of David and accuse his brother to have a wicked heart. So that is the first way of reading. Uh, when the Lord looks on the heart, it refers to the man's heart. Now, the problem with reading in this verse this way is that God's plan really depends on how good a person's heart will be and will stay. If this is going to be a problem because later on, David also sinned gravely against the Lord. But should God remove David and take back all the promises when it happens? So it is uh, a challenge uh, to read that God looks on the heart and choose king that will be uh, the way for his own son to come. Now the second way to read verse 7 is not to focus on Eliab, but to compare man that is human and God. So while we humans are prone to make decisions based on what we see as impressive, which is very incomplete, very shaky. God makes decisions based on his own heart, his own purpose. Now, John Woodhouse would put it this way. He said this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord told Samuel that the Lord sees not with eyes, taking in only impressions, but with his heart, his own personal intention and purposes. Now, David had a particular place in God's heart, God's purpose, and that is what made him so very different from Saul. Now, it doesn't mean that 
David doesn't love God. He does. But the focus here is that it is the Lord's heart that first chose him that allows him to. Now we may think, hey, this second way of reading is it's really clunky and difficult um, to read. The first one seems to be easier to read. But let me just invite us to pause for a moment, wrestle with the passage a little bit uh, as we look on. So here it is, um, some verses, one in the Psalms and then the rest back to Samuel. This is what David said in Psalm 139 verse 16 when he speaks to God. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So you have ordained everything before it came to be. Before we think that the second we're reading is too difficult, let's consider a few more verses within Samuel itself. Now, there's one great passage we'll come to, the great emotional messianic passage, 2 Samuel 7. Okay, 2 Samuel 7 is an amazing passage we look at. Here's a little bit of what's happening there, and I just want to read a portion later on, David's interaction with God. So this is what happened. Finally, David became king by 2 Samuel 7. He looked out his window, he saw, hey, I'm living in such a good house, nice house. My God is there. I want to build a house for God. So he said that to Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan said, see to it what you want. Sounds like a good idea to me. Right? You love God. Go ahead. But that night, God said, tell David, ye shall not build a house for me, but I will build a destiny, a house for him. And when David heard that, his heart was moved. He went and sat before the Lord. And this is his conversation with God. Let me read this for us. Then King David, he went in, he sat before the Lord. He said, Oh, who am I, O oh Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. This is referring to the eternal throne of his future son. Okay. And this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh Lord God, because of your promise, according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Now what is David saying? He's saying that it is not his heart that has brought about God's great eternal plan, but it is God's heart that has made someone as insignificant as him to be king and now through him, the eternal one to come. In fact, Samuel already mentioned this in a few chapters before today. He said this to Saul. This is from 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom, referring to Saul, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So there you go. When we are speaking on this passage, as God says, that man look with eyes, but I look with my heart, is referring to his own will and purpose. Now, you may ask this question, Andrew, why do we spend this quite a few minutes wrestling with this half a verse? Why do we pause here when there are two chapters to go? Well, it is because of this, that this will affect how we read the rest of David's kingship. Especially the time comes after that great promise is going to fall really, really bad and really in very dark places. But God will hold his promise and keep his words. It will affect how we read David's writing of Psalms. It will help us to find assurance when David's heart failed that God will sustain. And so you and I will be hold in God's promises. Now this will also explain to us why our world will not be able or cannot see God's eternal king 
if we look with our eyes and not beyond our eyes. Because here's the thing, God's king will not walk by the ways we see as greatness. God's king will walk by the most unexpected way to rescue God's people in the most unexpected means. Okay, so with that, we come back and we'll be running really fast to the rest of uh, today's passage. So back in chapter 1, verse 16, after rejecting all the sons, seven sons of Jesse, the father finally remembered, oh, by the way, I got another son. Not very much a man yet, you know, looking after the sheep. And Samuel said, we're going to all stand until he comes. So I don't know how long they're going to stand to find a shepherd boy in a field somewhere out. But by the time he comes, everybody is standing there. And Samuel finally um, see him. And then the Lord says in verse 12, rise, anoint him. This is the one. And so verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, as we read that the spirit comes upon David, the next verse from verse 14 says, and then it says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, we will, be, we will not be looking at 14 to 23 in details. If you had Bible study, you, this might be a discussion passage. But what we can see in that 14 to 23 really is the contrast between Saul and David to prepare us for the rest of the chapters ahead. Now, Saul was a king without God's spirit. David was a king empowered by God's spirit. It's not a passage about how music can come or drive evil spirits away. It's not a complex passage dis- discussing about evil spirits, but rather this passage is placed here, prepared to tell us that the spirit of the Lord was no longer with Saul. He'll be plagued with misery till he dies, and that's how it will end for Saul because he rejected the Lord, but the Lord will be with David through all the ups and downs as he rises to power. And this will prepare us for the future clashes between these two kings in the next few weeks as we read on. So with the anointing of David as God's chosen king in 1 Samuel 16, we now come to 1 Samuel 17 that Sam has read really well for us to see God affirming David's kingship. Now it turns out that a famous story of David and Goliath, if you are familiar with it, it's really not a moral story to teach us how to be more like David so that we can overcome the Goliaths in our lives. I don't know what are the Goliaths in our lives. You can think of all of them. It's got nothing to do with the moral story to be more like David, overcome our Goliaths. Rather, we are to see that the unexpected king appears to rescue God's people in the most unexpected way. So let's dig into this epic story now. Very briefly, but you will feel the vibe. So chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. They assembled at Sukkoth in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, the meme between Sukkoth and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Can you see Valley of Elah? So there it is, Gaf. Gaf is the famous place of the Philistines. And this is what it says. Verse 4, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gaf, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now once again, the battle line was drawn. We have seen it many times. Israel and her enemies, the Philistines. Now as they stood on the opposite hills of the valley of Elah, we are introduced to a Philistine champion called Goliath, 
We are told that he was approximately three meters tall, and that is a very, very, very tall man. Now, according to Guinness World Book, uh, Guinness uh, World Records, the tallest man who ever lived was called Robert Wetlow. He's eight feet eleven, two point seven two meters. That's that's how tall he is. That's the average man. Um, Maybe Saul is slightly taller than average man and David is slightly shorter than the average man. So you kind of have that. And he's taller than the traffic light. The next time you, uh, you walk out later, he's kind of way taller than the traffic light and taller than a grizzly bear standing. Now we read here, he was tall. And someone may say, oh, maybe Goliath is kind of weak man. Such a tall man can't be very strong. But hold on a second, you read on. He's not a man with a walking frame. Listen to how he is being described. He has been a warrior since he was a youth, 33. He's strong. His armor is heavier than most of our youths here, or maybe all our youths here. His armor itself is 5,000 shekels, which is 58 kg. You ever mentioned the bronze helmet, the bronze gra- uh, gravers, his bronze javelin. He's got a sword and a shaft. And then he has this spear, the iron, the iron head uh, point of the spear itself is 600 shekels, which is 6.9 kg. Okay, that's, that's a heavy thing, right? Uh, ask someone to go and buy all the, rice, all the chicken rice for everyone. It's still uh, less than that. And then he has this large shield of unknown weight such that he needs another soldier to carry it so that he looks impressive. And then when he's fighting, he'll take the, the, the shield and scares everybody to death, right? So that is Goliath. He was a giant that struck terror wherever he went. I want to ask a question. In a story like this, why did the author spend so much time describing this Philistine champion? Why, why, why spend so much time talking about him? The reason is this, because the Israelites look with their eyes. They look at outward appearance. And this time around, they are frightened. Why? Because Israelites, the Israel have their own champion. He used to be a tall man, saw his head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. So he's the tall man to all the Israelites. But now Saul looks like a pretty short man, probably one meter shorter than Goliath. So by outward appearance, Saul was no match for Goliath. And it's meant for us to read it. There's no one like him. And so the terror of the enemy shook the ground when Goliath defied them in verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So what Saul and Israelite did was what the other nations would do. But they did not look to the Lord. Well, think with me a bit more. As, as this drama turns out, you know, as all dramas are, that's the point where the hero must appear, right? So the unimpressive uh, David arrived with some rations uh, for his brother. And this is verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, was from Bethlehem in Judah. And so here comes David, young man from a small clan within the tribe of Judah, youngest of eight brothers. Three brothers were strong and old enough, fierce enough to be in the, soul, in the army. The other, five, the other seven, uh, the other four, no ideas right, whether they're suitable for uh, soldiers. And David, the youngest around. He's this errand boy for the family. Verse 15 says he ran back and forth to the camp and to be a uh, shepherd for his father's sheep. So on this occasion, the father sent David to bring supplies for the brothers, bring some news home. And he went there. He's, he's probably familiar. Like, this, uh, and, hey, your brother is here again. Ah, oh, gosh. That 
boy. So you can imagine he was going around, hey guys, everything. And then he heard um, the defying, uh, shaming uh, words of the Philistine. In verse 26, David asked the man standing near him. This is the very first words you hear David speak. He said, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, these are the first words of David. Two things came out. The first thing is his curiosity. What is the king of Israel going to do? And the second one is his indignation, his anger. What is that uncircumcised guy doing there? So his first words were, his curiosity on the king. The second is his indignation on the uncircumcised Philistine. So David ran around repeating his question. His brother Eliab was angry. So to Eliab, the annoyment of David meant nothing. Is this just irritant in the family? And he said to David, why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch Sure. Well, whatever David was doing, it caused such a stir in the camp that the news came to Saul and Saul wanted to see David. And this is where the interaction between Saul and David can be, um, cannot be more contrasting than anything you can find. So David, uh, Saul was hiding from the enemies. You don't want to see uh, Goliath. And here David coming to Saul and said, King, no scat. I fight. Okay, so that's the contrast uh, between Saul and David. While Saul saw Goliath as a terrifying warrior, David saw Goliath just another threat that God is going to just get rid of. Listen to the words of David to Saul in verse 36. Look at your Bible with me. He says, your, servants, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. The reason? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, the theme of seeing is found throughout these two chapters. Everywhere you see is about looking, about seeing. While the people see with their eyes and were terrified, David judged with God's eyes and saw an enemy that is dying. Now, it's hard to sense Saul's tone to David in 38, isn't it? What did, what, what did he mean when Paul said 38? Did he say, go and the Lord be with you? Or did he mean, go and the Lord be with you? No. What does Saul mean? But here David went forth and it is with great confidence. So as we come to this final showdown of God's champion David and the undefeatable enemy Goliath, this is what happens. Look at how the Writer of Saul shows uh, of Samuel shows Saul transferring his kingly uh, responsibility to David. Look at 38. This is a very interesting one. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, armor, helmet, and sword. So here's the king. He handed his own kingly armor to a young kid that he didn't know the name. But then in return, David says, Hey, this is too clunky, you know. It's like getting a Kid to wear the father's shoes to go for a competition. The shoe just fall off. So he says, no thanks, no armor. That's the most logical thing. Wear the small little armor to fight the big armor. But he says, no armor for me. 
I'm just going with what I have. So he went and he fought as he would in shepherd's clothes. And I just want to mention here, uh, talking about five stones, that there's nothing magical about these five stones that David got from the river, in case you have heard sermons about what the five stones are. Because you know what? We don't even know which of the five stones David used. Just one of the five stones. So nothing magical. There's no special uh, meaning to each of the precious five stones. He just happened to find five. He took five. He used one. Okay, and here it is. As the battle line draws near, we see the most comical picture. Okay, just imagine me, if you're still with me, right? Imagine a picture. On the Philistine side, you have this giant Goliath. His heavy armor, his all things frightening. He's walking there, his shoe barrier moving, and maybe the rest were kind of banging their shoe or whatever to make that more dramatic. He was there walking, and, and he took a while to notice David is small not because he's far away. He's small because he's small. So he realized, why do you just bring in front of me? And he was really angry, 43. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he gave his very last words. The last words of Goliath. He said, come here, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Now everyone saw David with worldly eyes. Samuel wouldn't have noticed David if not for the Lord. Goliath despised his brother. Saul could not imagine David winning. Goliath was fuming and he felt insulted. And Israel, you know what Israel did? He rather let his their buddy's little brother to fight and die in front of them for anyone to dare to stand out. They just kind of hid behind him. No one could see David for who it is. But he did not face Goliath by his own power, but this is why he said, verse 45, and this becomes the classic verse of David. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defined. And then he goes on. And what he said was this, what David saw was a dead Philistine champion, head rolled off just like the Philistine god Dagon in chapter 5. Face down, head rolled off. David saw the Philistine army dead. They were food for the birds and wild animals. He saw the world fearing the God of Israel. He saw Israel saved, returning to the Lord. And so he concluded his speech with 47. All those gathered here will know that there is not, it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. So the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. So with that, the battle really comes in. So if you are a Marvel kind of fan, you imagine this will be a 30 minutes battle and then the underdog will win. But really it's just one sentence and the whole battle is over. So verse 39, one sentence, reaching into his back, took out a stone, David slunk it, struck the Philistine on the forehead, stone sank into his head, he fell face down on the ground. That's it. Just one sentence. Wait, even shorter than the whole speech that he gave. So Goliath fell, just like Dagon, their gods fell. Chapter 5 it was over. If we cut off Goliath's head, the, the friends of the brothers now come out and uh, shout and win the battle, plundered the enemy's camp. Saul now saw David again. This time he asked, Whose son are you, young man? And David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. And that marks the end of these two chapters. But dear friends, as we were journeying through this passage, we saw the anointing of David as king and the affirming of his kingship. The question we want to ask is, what do we make of it? He is a king unlike others. 
There's a rescue here unlike any to be expected. And the victory of Goliath is not a moral of the story challenging us to be more like David. It is an introduction of God's chosen king who will come and save. I want to bring us to two last passages that are not from Samuel to help us understand what is this whole battle preparing us for. This is what uh, the prophet Isaiah said regarding God's servant king in Isaiah 53, verse 2. He says this of Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is appearance that we should desire him. And Apostle Paul says of this, But the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now dear friends, when Jesus came as that humble king, he came to save us from our undefeatable enemy called death. How do we see Jesus? Is he like the other kings? What do we see when we read about David and Goliath? I think here's the thing. When we read about David and Goliath, we need to know this. We are not David. We are Israel. We are the very ones who had a great enemy to overcome and we cannot deal with it. We go to war with a war crest that says sin and we try to win death. It will not happen. But what we have is to ask that we have the spiritual eyes to see Jesus and believe in him because he is the king that comes not on a golden crown but a crown of thorns. He came not as a warrior with a sword but one with hands nailed to a cross for us. So the late Puritan John Owen, he wrote a book with a title I could never forget and maybe you won't forget again. John Owen wrote a book and he called it The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Can you, can you repeat that? Yep. Easy to remember. It's basically reminding us that our death dies when Christ dies for us. And that is the only way to defeat death. Not by eating more pills to live longer or to ignore that there's no God or judgment. The only way to defeat death is the death of Christ. If you trust in Jesus, our death is dead when Christ died for us. So as we wrap this time and close this time, it's worth preparing our hearts to remember that our King, God, does not work the way the kings of this world does. And the way that God saves will not be the way that we see the world doing it. Why don't we pray? Lord, help us to see Jesus as our King in our fancy, distracting world. Help us to see that our enemy is there and we cannot defeat him. And it doesn't help when we dig a hole in the ground and put our head in it. But rather help us to see Jesus and trust in his death and resurrection in our world. In a world that glorifies human achievements and despises the shame of God. But help us look to Christ and see glory in the shame of Jesus on the cross. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.